Well, yeah, how did these kids get here? Come on, people. <laughs> of course we are. It's a short sermon series. Uh, next week, Pastor Kenny is going to be here, and he is going to be walking through God's design for marriage. Today, I'm going to be walking through God's design for sex and the sexual relationship. And then two weeks from now, we are going to be talking about how we can experience forgiveness, freedom, and victory if we've experienced failure in these areas, which I would contend most of us in the room have. Let's start off by acknowledging that sex is a subject that makes us uncomfortable, especially the person who has to talk about it from the front. <laughs> so why are we doing it? Because it is also a vital subject. Because God has a design for the sexual relationship. And the world has a way in which they're treating the sexual relationship. And these two things are very different. And with each passing decade, they grow further and further apart. And it's imperative that we live according to the design of God. I'm going to steal an illustration here that Kenny used two years ago. I love the illustration. I'm just going to steal it right away from him. He's speaking here next week. If he uses his own illustration, the week after I've used it, I want you to say to him, hey, why are you using Matt's material? All right? This is uh, the time of year when we have a fire in our fireplace at our house. And when the fire is in the fireplace, it's a great blessing. It brings warmth to the room. It's beautiful. My wife says it's romantic. Right? It's a great blessing when the fire is where it belongs in the fireplace. But what happens if I take the fire and I move it out of the fireplace and I just bring it into the dining room or the living room? And it begins to consume the dining room table, the couch in the living room, climb the walls, and pretty soon we're in this situation. What is beautiful and a great blessing when it isn't the place in which it is designed to be is dangerous and damaging when it gets moved out of that and is used in ways that it was never intended to be used or in a place where it was never intended to be used. This is true of all of God's blessings, all of his great gifts. They are a blessing to us when they're used in the way that he has called us to use them. Food, for example, it's a great blessing from God. And it is meant to be used in moderation each and every day. But when we take food out of the way that God designed it to be used and begin to use it in ways of gluttony, looking to food for our happiness, or gorging, overeating, or disorders where we eject or reject food, we have now reached a place in which we have moved his designed gift out of the fireplace, and it does damage in our lives. Work is a great gift from God. It was given to us, and you guys are like, no, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> right? Given to us before the fall in Genesis chapter 2. It is a way in which we're to be able to provide for ourselves, provide for society, and give to those who are in need. But Satan just takes that good gift twists it a little bit and moves it out of the fireplace and it becomes workaholism or it becomes gaining your identity through your work and it's destructive and damaging. 
God's given us these, these good gifts, and they're great when they're used in the ways that he has called us to use them, and they're damaging and destructive when we move them out of the fireplace and use them in ways that he has not called us to use them. That is nowhere more true than in the area of sex. When we take God's good gift that he has prescribed, that he has designed for a husband and a wife to enjoy, and we move it into places that he had no intention for it to be used, it's damaging to people, to our souls, and to society. Jesus gives us God's design for the sexual relationship in Matthew chapter 19. He is there asked by Pharisees about divorce. And in his response to divorce, he, uh, he reviews his own design as our maker for marriage and the sexual relationship. We, we read there, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We notice right off the bat that Jesus says, God made two sexes, male and female. We live in a world that wants to separate gender from sex, and people are claiming an ever-growing list of gender identifiers. Uh, we're in a place where I think uh, Demi Lovato has claimed three different genders in the last two years. And the last time said, I'm going to this because I just feel this way right now. This is the world we live in. It's a matter of authority. Does the maker have authority? And does he determine our identity and our path? Or are we the ultimate authority? And we determine our identity and our path. Jesus says to his followers, God's the ultimate authority. He's the one who makes us male and female. He determines your identity. He determines your path. Not our feelings, our longings, our, our declarations. Kenny's going to unpack this more in his message uh, next week. But I want us to understand this is a matter of authority. Is God the ultimate authority? Or am I and my feelings the ultimate authority in these things? Jesus says God made us men and women and instituted marriage so that we can become one flesh. One flesh intimacy means more than just physical oneness, but it also includes physical oneness. That God has designed men and women to come together in marriage and experience physical oneness together, one fleshness together. Jesus teaches his own design as our creator for marriage and sexuality, which is affirmed throughout the scripture, and that is this, that sexuality is reserved for a husband and a wife within the marriage relationship. Why did God make us as men and women to have sex within the marriage relationship? What's his purpose in all of this? It's a very important question. Let, let me give you a few things that we can identify as the purpose that God has given us for marriage. One is so that husbands and wives will grow in oneness and unity. It expresses our oneness and unity, and it helps us to grow in our oneness and unity. When we join together physically, we not only join together physically, but we, according to 1 Corinthians 7, join together spiritually. Our souls mingle together. 
There, there are also biochemical reactions that take place as a husband and a wife are united together that draw us into closer relationship. Right? Biochemists say that there are extraordinary amounts of oxytocin that is released within the one fleshness that a husband and a wife encounter together. Oxytocin is a strong bonding chemical within us. And so there is a sense in which we, we physically, chemically, uh, mentally, spiritually join together. We are glued together with the person with which we experience sexual relationship. Can you imagine the consequences of treating this kind of relationship where we are glued together as if it is disposable? It, it harms body, mind, and soul. It's for oneness and unity. Second, God has given us the sexual relationship within marriage to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. Ephesians 5 says that the primary purpose that marriage plays in life is to reflect the loving relationship between Christ and his people. And the sexual relationship is a part of how that oneness and love between Christ and his church is reflected in our marriages. God regularly uses pictures of sexual infidelity in the Old Testament to talk about how his people are involved in idolatry and are going astray from him. And he regularly uses pictures of sexual fidelity, faithfulness, to communicate about the beauty of his relationship with his people. And so a husband and a wife are to be regularly reminded through this act of, of oneness and unity and intimacy, of the oneness and intimacy that Christ has with his people. It is a reflection to husbands and wives of how Christ reacts, interacts with his church. Oneness, loving, and uh, intimate. Third, God has given us the sexual relationship within marriage for procreation. Uh, so that people will be fruitful and multiply. He has said to Christian husbands and wives that bringing up children in the fear and admonition of the Lord is a large part of the reason that I've brought you together. And so we are ready to procreate when we are excited about discipling children and bringing them up in the ways of the Lord. Fourth, God has given us sexual relationship within marriage for spiritual growth. This is why God has given us so much of what we experience in the world. His great design for us, according to Romans 8, 29, is that we would become like Jesus. He has saved us so that we would be made in the image of Jesus. More loving, less selfish. The world approaches the sexual relationship in a way that is selfish. It is about attaining pleasure. Jesus has created the sexual relationship as a way for us to grow in selflessness, to grow in love in putting the other person first. And so a husband and a wife have an opportunity within their sexual relationship to regularly be growing in love and away from selfishness as they put the other person first within that relationship. He has brought us this for spiritual growth. And finally, God has created the sexual relationship, for a husband and wife to experience pleasure together. We, we don't have to read very far into the Song of Solomon to recognize that the sexual relationship brings pleasure to a husband and a wife. 
1 Corinthians 7 says husbands and wives aren't to deny each other the sexual relationship. And the implication is there's going to be a desire for it because it's pleasurable. And so don't be denying each other that pleasure because God has designed the sexual relationship for a husband and a wife to enter into and experience that pleasure together. Dare I say that like every great pleasure that we might experience here on the earth, God has designed it to primarily call our attention to the far greater and never-ending pleasure that is ours in our heavenly inheritance. Like every pleasure that we experience in this world, God has designed it to call our minds and our hearts to the attention of the fact that we are going to experience eternal pleasures at his right hand forevermore that are far greater than anything that we experience in this world. And so God has created sexual relationship within marriage for these reasons. Uh, The world's values when it comes to sexual relationship are very different than this. And so when we think about what the world values within sexual relationship, it starts with self-rule. I'm in charge of my life. I make the rules. God isn't in charge here. My feelings are. And I need to act on whatever my feelings tell me to do. Second, uh, love sells the idea that love is a feeling, right? The scriptures teach us that love is a choice of sacrificially giving towards another people. But for decades, decades, perhaps centuries, the world has been selling people the idea that love is about the butterflies that you feel in your stomach during those moments of infatuation. And you need to act on those if you are ever going to be fulfilled and content as a person. Which brings us to the third value that governs the world's idea of sexuality, and that is sexuality is my identity, and it is essential for me to live it out in order to be fulfilled. In the scripture, God promises ultimate contentment and ultimate fulfillment through intimacy and relationship with him. And there are all sorts of people in the scripture who live life to the full in relationship with God who never experience sexual relationship. Jesus, Paul, Elijah, Elisha, John the Baptist. We, we go on and on with person after person who never had sexual relationship and ultimate, experienced ultimate life to the full with God. The world will say that's not possible. The only way that a person can have fulfillment and contentment is to live out any sexual feelings that you have. And so the world and God's design differ greatly here. The final value that governs the world's understandings of sexuality is, it's my bedroom, it's my business. You can't tell me what to do in my own home. You can't tell me what to do in my bedroom. For the believer, we say God has authority over our life everywhere we go. In the most public moments of our life and in the most intimate moments of our life, he is there and he has full authority over our lives. The world says, no, no, this is my private area and I'll do whatever I want, whatever my feelings dictate in this area. These lists of values have led to more and more cases of incestuous marriage. A father and his adult son suing the state of Pennsylvania so that they can marry one another. Why not? I mean, if love is love... And my feelings are the ultimate authority, and I have feelings in this direction. What is to say that shouldn't happen? After all, you can't tell me what to do in the privacy of my own home. It's brought about more and more cases of polyamorous marriage. 
That is multiple people all getting married to each other so that in the state of Nevada, six people are suing the state of Nevada so that they can all enter into one marriage together. Four guys, two women, all in one marriage together. Again, who's to say that you can't? If ultimately the values that govern are my feelings, rule the day, they need to be acted on for my happiness, and you can't tell me what to do in my own home, then ultimately where are the lines drawn? If I'm the ultimate authority and I need to carry out whatever my longings are for happiness and whatever happens in my bedroom is only my business, then why would there ever be any lines drawn about what is right and what is wrong in this area? There is an ever-growing chasm between the design of God and the way of the world in this area. And God is very clear again and again and again in Scripture. Any sexual expression outside of husband and wife marriage is sin. Any sexual expression outside of the husband and wife marital relationship is sin. And so the Bible identifies seven different sins that I'm going to put up here on the screen. Right? The first is adultery, cheating. This clearly goes against God's design for marriage. The National Science Foundation of the University of Chicago has been studying infidelity since the early 1970s. And what they have found is that every decade, there's a greater percentage of people committing adultery in the United States than the decade before. In a study done by the University of Washington, they found that infidelity rose over 15% between 1991 and 2016. Right? 1991 is not the ancient past. If infidelity continues to increase at that rate, then every relationship will be an unfaithful one in the next 60 years. It just can't happen. That's an astounding rate of increase. The second way that the Bible says we take fire out of the fireplace and do damage and destruction is in incest. In our country, this is another problem that grows decade after decade. One in four girls is sexually abused by someone close to them while growing up. One in six boys is sexually abused before they turn 18. I want to say to those in the room who have experienced this, how sorry I am that you have gone through that. That this is someone taking fire out of the fireplace. And you have experienced the damage that comes from that in your own life. And we love you and we want to support you and we want to care about you. Incest is deep sexual sin, right? Fire out of the fireplace. The third sin that the Bible addresses is bestiality. God says, hey, shepherd, I don't care if you've been in the field for six months only with sheep. They're off limits. I'm not going to go any further with this one. (laughs) Who is thankful I'm not going any further with this one? (laughs) The fourth sin, fornication. The Greek word for fornication is a broad word for sex outside of the marriage relationship. It is most often used about two single people who enter into a sexual relationship. We live in a world in which the idea of waiting to have a sexual relationship until marriage is thought to be old-fashioned. Why don't we just go back to churning our own butter, riding in horse-drawn carriages, if we're going to be this old-fashioned about things. The world encourages people to seek pleasure through hookups. 
And it is assumed, as a matter of fact, in most studies, a majority of young Americans believe that you should live with someone and have sexual relationship with them before you marry them. The results of this have been catastrophic. A study in the American Journal of Health and Behavior reported that women who'd had more than one sexual partner over their lifetime are far more likely to suffer from depression than are their monogamous counterparts. They're far more likely to suffer from addiction, seven times more likely to attempt suicide. A national study by Rutgers University, as I'm quoting these studies by universities, I, I just want to point out, these are not Christian universities, right? Rutgers University, a study done by them says couples who had a sexual relationship before marriage were 30% more likely to divorce after marriage than those who did not. Among couples who had a sexual relationship before marriage, the woman is twice as likely to be abused in the relationship and three times as likely to experience depression during her lifetime. There is a designer who designed sexual relationship for a specific way and a specific place. And when we move that fire out of the fireplace, it does damage. The fifth sexual sin that the Bible talks about is lust. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You want to stare at your wife, husbands, and long for her? Go ahead and do it all day long. But Jesus says when you start staring at and longing for, right, desiring relationship with someone else who's not your wife, that's a problem. It's not a problem to see someone who's attractive. It's not a problem to acknowledge that someone else is attractive. It is a problem when we begin to crave someone else, when we begin to think deeply about someone else and lust for someone else. Pornography is the industry of lust and craving. A 2018 study, over 50% of recent divorcees said that ongoing pornographic use was a major reason that led to their divorce. Over half of recent divorcees said pornography was a major reason. Ongoing pornographic use was a major reason that they got divorced. In a survey around the same time conducted among evangelical churches, 68% of men who identified as evangelical Christians said that they regularly, not occasionally, regular watch or look at porn. 25% of women in evangelical churches said that they regularly watch or look at porn. Of course, this lust falls outside of God's design for the marriage relationship. And let me also say that I fully believe that there are a number of people in this room today who are silently and secretly losing the battle in this area to lustful pornography and we're going to talk in two weeks about how we can have victory in this area. But, but just real quickly, I would say we can never have victory as long as it is a secret battle. As long as it is our battle alone. God has designed us to fight together in these battles. Lust. The sixth sexual sin that the Bible talks about is homosexuality. Let me go back to some comments that I made a year ago when we studied homosexuality in Romans chapter 1. Because in our society, more than any other sin on this list, this is being celebrated. And if you won't celebrate it, 
you are seen as narrow and bigoted. What God calls sin is being celebrated as virtue. So what are we supposed to do about that as followers of Jesus? Let me give you four things. First of all, we call sin, sin. In the places where the Bible condemns homosexual activity, it isn't confusing, right? It isn't vague, it's clear. You look at the words translated in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, they are just the general word for homosexual activity. It's not vague, it's not unclear, it's just not popular. Romans chapter 1 couldn't be clearer when it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because, that's such an important word, because... They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Right? Romans 1 says, God gave them up to these kinds of lustful passions and we're about to read what those look like in a moment. Why? Because they abandoned God as authority and said, no, we the creatures are authority. Because they abandoned God's way and said, no, we're going to do things our own way. And when people began to live away from God's way and towards the way of sin and dysfunction, homosexual desire and practice increases. And so in the next verses, we read, for this reason, that is because people have rejected God in his way and have taken on themselves as God and their own way as the way to live, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up their natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What Romans 1 teaches us is the more idolatrous and sinful and dysfunctional family and society become, the more homosexual expression and activity there is going to be. Uh, the more there is absentee fatherism, the more there is abuse within the home, sexual, physical, emotional abuse, the more society breaks down, the greater amount of homosexual activity and homosexual desire there's going to be. It, it used to be popular, particularly in the late 90s and early 2000s, to say, well, homosexuality, homosexuality and homosexual desire is driven by our genetics, Right? Particularly in the early 2000s, there was a lot of talk about, well, we're going to find a gay gene, and it's going to explain why people are that way. But scientists have known that same-sex attraction isn't found in our gene makeup for years. There have been dozens, and that is not an exaggeration, dozens of studies of identical twins who share the exact same DNA and genetic material. And what scientists have found in those studies is that when one of those identical twins identifies as having same-sex attraction more often than not, the other identical twin does not, despite the fact that they have the exact same genetic makeup. As a matter of fact, in one of the most recent studies that studied hundreds of different identical twins, they found that when one of those identical twins identified as having same-sex attraction, 80% of the other twins did not. 80% did not, despite having the same genetic material. A much better understanding comes out of the University of Chicago. Can we all acknowledge that is absolutely not a Christian university? 
which found a high rate of same-sex attraction in men who had similar early childhood experiences and environments. There was a much higher percentage of same-sex attraction among men who had absentee fathers or were sexually, physically, and emotionally abused. Right? What, what is that study saying? What are these studies saying? They're saying what Romans is saying. The more we move away from God and his way, the more we enter into idolatry, brokenness, sinfulness, and dysfunction in families and in society, the greater amount of same-sex attraction and practice there's going to be within the society. And as the world has veered further and further from the design of God, you've seen churches veer away from God's truth in varying degrees. Some have veered to the point of promoting with pride their gay clergy. Others have veered to the point of advertising themselves as open and affirming. But far more, particularly among evangelical churches, have compromised, not by advertising themselves as open and affirming, but simply by remaining silent from their pulpits because they know this is controversial and they don't want to lose bodies or bucks. We must never compromise. Right? Sin is sin. And what God calls something, we want to call something because he is our ultimate authority. Secondly, I want us to recognize that sin is in the act. We have believers who are here today who fully recognize that same-sex activity is wrong but are battling same-sex attraction in their life. Temptation to do something and doing it are two different things. Many of our brothers and sisters desperately wish this was not their situation. But what is condemned in the New Testament is homosexual practice, giving in to those temptations. It is our job and our desire out of our love for Jesus Christ to support those who recognize the sin of homosexual practice but are battling same-sex attraction within themselves. To support them in that temptation in the same way that I desire they support me in the temptations that are foremost in my life. That is our desire. I heard a speaker a few weeks ago who battles same-sex attraction as a follower of Jesus. And he said, of course I am going to give up my attractions and desires to follow him. For him that meant living a celibate life. Because he's called me to give up everything. And he said, that's not Jesus' unique call to me as someone who struggles with same-sex attraction that I give up everything in order to follow him. That's his call to every person. That they give up everything in their life in order to be his follower. He's like, it's simple discipleship that I would give this up in order to follow after him and be obedient to him. Everyone should be giving up everything in their life in order to follow after him. There are certain things that are more challenging for one person, certain temptations that are more challenging for one person than for another. And we want to love each other and support each other as we battle those things. Third, we want to object to homosexual practice out of love for God and people. I've said before, disapproving of homosexual practice is not uniquely Christian. I grew up in the 1980s in a town called St. Cloud, and a vast majority of the young men that I went to elementary, junior high, and high school with disapproved of sexual practice, you know, homosexual practice. Uh, most of them used different slurs in order to identify 
the worst things among us. They would use gay slurs for that purpose. They were staunchly against homosexual practice, and they didn't love Jesus in any way and didn't acknowledge God's authority in any way. Right? To disagree with homosexual practice is not uniquely Christian. What is uniquely Christian is to disagree with homosexual practice because we love God and love people. To love God is what it means to be a Christian. He's the priority of our life and his commands lead us in absolutely everything. As Christians, when we object to homosexual practice, it's because God says it's wrong and it goes against his reason for sexual relationship within marriage. We love God and we love Jesus so much we want to call everything what he calls it and see everything the way that he sees it. And so when he says this is wrong, we jump on board quickly because we love him more than anything in our lives. We also object to homosexual practice out of a love for people. Loving people isn't telling them what they want to hear. Loving people isn't telling people what's popular. Loving people is telling people the truth. Gently. With compassion. But it's still the truth. A person may believe with all their heart and mind that they are going to get to Iowa by jumping on 35 North. All of society may affirm you can get to Iowa by jumping on 35 North. But for me to say to someone, yeah, you should get on 35 North in order to get to Iowa is not loving. Right? What's loving is to say, no, you got to get on 35 South if you want to get to Iowa. Those who love care enough to speak the truth about what is the right way to go. We're to speak the truth in love and gentleness with compassion, but still the truth. Finally, we must show love and compassion to all people. God calls us to show love and compassion to all people. We believe that every person needs to be afforded kindness, respect, and dignity. Every person is made in the image of God, and the believer is called to love everyone, whether we disagree with them, whether they are our persecutor. We are to love them and to be praying for them. Hateful and harassing behavior and attitudes directed toward any individual are to be rejected for the follower of Jesus Christ. We're to show love and compassion to all people. We also recognize homosexuality is a sin that the Bible talks about that falls short of God's design for marriage and sexuality. The final sin that I want to address may be the one that's most surprising, and that is the sin of selfish sex in marriage. It's very possible to avoid all of these other sins, only have sex within your marriage relationship, and still move sex outside of the fireplace so that it's damaging. As a matter of fact, I would contend it happens all the time. When husbands and wives enter into their sexual relationship with selfish rather than loving intent. The world's perspective on sexual relationship is that it is for self-gain. That it is to be approached selfishly. I'm going to get some. Of course, God rejects all of these motivations and attitudes. God says to consider others better than yourself. In 1 Corinthians 7, he's very clear. Husbands and wives, your bodies are not your own. They're to be used for the benefit of the other. 
Husbands, your bodies are for your wife's purposes. Wives, your, your bodies are for your husband's purposes. The sexual relationship is about what's best for the other person every time we enter into it. The key to a holy and great sex life for couples is the same as the key to a great relationship. I say this in premarital counseling all the time. I do a lot of premarital counseling. I got to tell you, young couples are so excited when we get to that week where we talk about sex, right? I mean, who doesn't want to talk about sex with their pastor for an hour? You should see their faces light up. Like, ah, finally, this is great. What I tell them is what I tell you here today, the key to a holy, H-O-L-Y, and great sex life for couples is the key to great life in any other area of marriage, open communication, and love that puts the other person first. Right? Open communication and love that puts the other person first. That's God's call to husbands and wives. Not to be selfish in our sexual relationship, but to constantly be loving, putting the other person first. What if I've moved fire out of the fireplace? God's design, it's a beautiful design in the fireplace. He has made sexual relationship for husbands and wives for all of those reasons that we talked about earlier. Not, not just to experience physical pleasure, but yes. Not just for procreation, but yes. But also to reflect the glory of Jesus' relationship with his church. To reflect what true unity and intimacy and oneness looks like. All of these great reasons that God has given us this. But what if we've taken the sexual relationship and we've moved it outside of the fireplace? Is there hope for forgiveness? Is there hope for restoration? Is there hope to be free from shame? Is there hope for victory if we're in the midst of sexual sin right now? That's what we're going to be talking about two weeks from now. So I want to encourage you and invite you to come back for that. But at the risk of spoiling, the answer is, of course, yes. Right? Through the work of Jesus Christ, there is, of course, forgiveness possible. There is, of course, freedom from shame that can be ours. There is, of course, freedom and victory that we can have in our life. You remember 1 Corinthians 6? Paul writes to the Corinthian church in a city that was filled with enough sexual sin that it might make us blush even in our day. And he writes this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. Washed away. Your sins were washed. You were sanctified, made holy. You were justified, declared righteous in the courtroom of God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were declared righteous, made holy because you're good enough? No, through the work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit of God that we celebrate at this table together. As we take the Lord's Supper today, 
Well, I usually call us to spend a moment confessing our sins together. Particularly today, I don't know how we don't focus on these kinds of sins, sexual sin in our life. As I look at my own life, I can see areas of failure in my own life. You may be able to see areas of failure in your own life. Let's go before the Lord and spend time confessing that before him. And then as we get up and go to grab those elements, can we recognize the forgiveness and washing and cleansing that takes place only through the work of Jesus Christ and his goodness that we celebrate at this table? Let me encourage you to, yes, focus on your sin, but then focus on his grace, which is greater than our sin as you go to that table. I'll invite you all to stand with me right now, and we're going to sing and praise God. And when you've confessed and your heart is ready, let me encourage you to make your way to the tables and grab the bread and the cup. You can return to your seats, and I'll lead us in the taking of those elements in just a moment. Let's praise our God together.